Good morning. Just make sure you're all awake. How many have had your coffee? Yeah, ready to go? Great. I've entitled the message today, Marriage. Marriage, a spiritual partnership of love and respect. Marriage, a spiritual partnership of love and respect. Let's pray. Father, we come back to the simple fact and truth that you are the originator and the creator of marriage. And in that you have a plan and a purpose and that may or may not interface with what we hear every day here in America. But, Lord, we look back to your word so that we can find truth and reality and um, we can honor you if we're married. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Teach us today in Jesus name. Amen. If you're married in here today. How's your marriage going? How's your marriage going? The question probably isn't asked enough by ourselves or others so that we could evaluate maybe a little more frequently. The truth be told, when you look at statistics, and then uh, I've been involved with uh, helping people pre-marriage work or being married or counseling after that, the reality is that about 60 to 70 percent of marriages are struggling. They're stale. They're routine. They're just roommates. It's hard to believe. Or they're quickly going towards crisis or they're in crisis. 60 to 70 percent. That might shock you because usually when a couple calls me and says, hey, we need marriage help or marriage counseling or some somebody to talk with, they think they're the only ones. But in all reality, 60 to 70 percent of people who are currently married are struggling in their relationship. The divorce rate still hovers around 50 to 55 percent in America. One in two. By the way, what's the purpose of marriage? Well, I came right out of the gate on that one, didn't I? I want you to think real quick. What's the purpose of marriage? Really, I think if you look from a biblical definition, it's to complete another human being. The purpose of marriage is not necessarily for you to get your wants and your needs met. That doesn't seem right or normal or natural. How many of you, when you got married, you you fell in love? Is that 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 person made you feel good and and you thought that they were going to be a partner and they were going to meet many of your wants and your needs? You probably didn't go into marriage thinking, you know what, I just want to give my life so that they're happy. Whether I'm happy or not doesn't matter. My job is to complete them. That's not how people think, especially in America today. It's what that other person is doing for me. How they're making me feel so that my needs and my wants are met. Have you identified the one most important thing that your spouse wants and needs from you? The one thing. Your mind's probably hopefully moving pretty quickly. What's one thing? See, I think we at times like to make things more complicated and difficult than they are. You can think of a lot of things that your husband 
wants from you or needs from you or vice versa with the wife. But really, if you look at from God's creation, from his word, a man down deep in his heart, the number one thing he wants is you to respect him. You might not think that. You might be able to think of all kinds of other things. He wants this. He wants that. Time away. He wants the boat. He wants to play golf. He wants to go on. Whatever it is. Biblically, he wants respect. And you can look at all the things that the wife wants. She wants you to clean up the kitchen. She wants you to do this. Or she wants you to take her out on a date. What she wants biblically is she wants love. We're going to talk about it here in the scriptures. But everything really usually comes down to that. A man is wired to want and need a spiritual spouse that will respect him. And I don't have time to go into all the reasons why. And for a wife. What she wants more than anything else is for that husband to be filled with a love and a godly love of God and give that to her unconditionally. Again, we see all the symptoms and all the trappings and all the the detours, but ultimately that's the truth according to a biblical understanding of how we've been created, male and female. Marriage was designed and intended to be a spiritual partnership where love and respect would be provided, nurtured, modeled, and enjoyed. If you find a couple today that seems to be content and satisfied and happy and fulfilled, you probably know that somehow they've been able to tap into and nurture and advance the proper kind of love and respect that the other person needs. Today we are at a unique place in going through the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 22 through 33. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll take a look at that. I want to say to you, to those of you who are in here today, and you might say, I'm not married. I might as well go and just take a nap. I might as well uh, disengage. I want to tell you that as we uh, progress through this message and I get to eight things I'd like you to consider, they work in any relationship. They work between uh, children to parents, parents to children, to employees, to employers, to friends, to neighbors. These, These eight things will work in any relationship, but predominantly we're going to focus in marriage. So I want to let you know that if you're not married in here and you think, oh, gosh, I just got to sit here for another 25 minutes and and listen to this, I want you to know there's a lot you can learn in any relationship. We were created and wired for relationships. And our own humanity and the warfare of the enemy tries to break and divide and hinder and damage and ruin all kinds of relationships including and especially marriage. So uh, let's take a look at what Paul has to say here. And this is a passage that some uh, people like to ignore or avoid, or they may misunderstand it. Uh, Really, I want to look at verse 21. Uh, DJ spoke last week, and he put it in the context of, of some previous verses, and it does fit there. There's been a theological debate 
for years where verse 21 fits? Does it fit in preceding verses or uh, does it launch the the, uh, verses we're going to read? But uh, it says, submit to one another out of the fear of God. Put that there. But verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'm sure a lot of you just, I heard an amen out there. Yes, right on, Paul. Amen. I'm going to submit to my husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. I think I heard another amen. The wives are just pumped up about this word. They really like Paul, don't they? Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. We are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you think Paul was just kind of speaking out of both sides of his mouth, or do you think he was inspired by God to shed light on a very important subject, not about only about Christ and the church, but about the relationship between a husband and a wife? I mean, it's so easy sometimes to tear out the portions of the Bible we don't understand or we don't like, but we can't do that. But I want to give you and talk real briefly about three definitions here of words so that we have a little basic understanding. First is the word submit. How many of you, when I read, wives, submit to your husbands, like I said, you went, yeah, I can't wait. I get up every morning and that's what I long to do. I just long to submit to him. Probably not that often. The word submit, it means to be proper and healthy alignment under covering and authority. I know this sounds kind of crazy, but I want you to know something. It's about alignment. How many of you have ever had your body out of alignment? Uh, real quickly, pray for my young son, uh, Nate. He blew out two of his discs and going to have to have surgery. And he's, he's walking around because he's not in right alignment. I want you to know, as I'm standing here, God created me so I would stand on both feet. My heart will always be underneath my head. <laughs> right? Now, I could stand on my head and it would probably be the opposite, but that's not how God created me. In a sense, I am in right alignment. And if you will, there's a covering there. I used to tell my kids when they were growing up, if you see authority as negative, it'll be negative. But if you see authority or covering as positive, it will protect you. 
How many of you know that if you're outside and walking around and you have an umbrella and it starts hailing or it starts raining a lot, that that covering is going to be to your advantage? You need to submit to it. You need to be in right alignment because it's created for a purpose. So, again, I know we live in a culture uh, when wives go, I'm not going to submit. What is the Bible talking about? That's old-fashioned. I hate that. I misunderstand that. It's about being in right alignment for your benefit and for your good. So we need to kind of think, looking at submit a little different way. Then the word love, because it says that husbands are to love their wives. Uh, love, it's the word agape in the Greek. It means pure and sacrificial service. So wives are supposed to make sure they're in that right alignment and that a husband is supposed to serve his wife. And then if you look back on down in verse 33 at the very end, Paul says, uh, let the wife see that she respects her husband. He doesn't use the same word as submit in verse 22. That always used to confuse me because I think he, he starts out and he says, wives, submit to your husband. At the end, he says, make sure you respect them. It's a different word. Actually, if you look up the Greek word, the Greek word, it's the word phobos, where we get the word phobia. It actually means fear. You're to fear your husband. And you're going, what are you talking about that? Here's the point. He is to provide you something you can't find anywhere else. And you should be afraid to miss that. Because God's blessings come through that. So make sure that you don't miss God's best. Now, I'm not going to get too farther on to all of that about submit and love and respect and phobia. What I want to do is I want to spend the, the remaining time, again, even for those of you who aren't married, I think this will help. But I want to do a little marriage seminar. Actually, this is about a six-hour marriage seminar that we're going to do in two hours today. <laughs> oh, come on. You know me. It will be out by noon. It's really about six hours. So I'm not going to be able to use a lot of illustrations, and, and I won't go over everything. But I want to give you a shotgun thing. That, that will get you thinking, and again, then my suggestion or my hope or my prayers that you would make it some homework. And again, if you're not married, look at some of your relationships. If you're married, take a look at this. So I want to share eight of them real quick. Number one, so that you can have a spiritual partnership that's filled with love and respect, and so that your marriage could represent Christ in the church. Number one, determine to grow in your personal faith to improve your marriage. The best and most beneficial and the most profitable thing that you can do to help create a positive, healthy, whole marriage is for you to grow in your faith. It's for you to walk close to Jesus. For you to say, hey, I'm going to grow to be a more godly man or a more godly woman. That will help your marriage more than probably anything that you can think about. People forget that. Again, we're so focused on, on so many things. But I want to say to you today, if you want to have a successful, happy marriage, get close to God. Grow in your faith. Become a man of the Bible. Become a woman of the Bible where you read it and you understand it and you study it and you pray that it would get inside of you. 
you would be a man of prayer or a woman of prayer. You'd have devoted, dedicated time to say, you know what, all the distractions of this life I'm going to put to the side for five minutes or ten minutes or fifteen minutes or twenty minutes, and I'm just going to walk with God and, and yield and grow in my relationship. I'm going to be the leader. I'm going, to, I'm going to be when the church doors are open. Not for religious sake. I'm not interested in that. But you take the spiritual leadership and say, I'm going to lead my family. I'm going to be at the church, whether you're male or female. I'm going to grow. I'm going to grow to be the most godly man or the most godly woman I can be. You can't do any, probably anything more important for your marriage, for your spouse, or for any other relationship than to grow in your faith. And somehow it seems to get knocked down on the priority list or it's put to the side or we get detoured. I want to put it at the top of the list, my friend. I'm going to be honest with you. If you want to have a a successful, healthy, whole marriage or you want to grow in any relationship, grow in your spiritual faith. Get disciplined. Get dedicated. Prioritize it. Say, I'm going to become a spiritual man or a spiritual woman. Number two, major on the majors, not on the minors. I'm sorry. It says major on the majors. That's wrong. Major, yeah, I'm sorry. Major on the majors and not on the minors. See, I'm getting older, man. Sometimes it's just kind of major on the majors and not on the minors. How many of you know that something small begins to take on a life of its own if you don't deal with it? appropriately you take a little fire you throw fuel on it it becomes engulfed and it can just spread like wildfire how easy is it in any relationship but in marriage to start majoring on the minors the other day and again i'm not going to share a lot of illustrations because i'm going to protect uh, even my own relationship with my wife but the other day i think we were both having kind of a little bit of a challenging day on I asked her a question, and I kind of felt like she kind of was a little sharp and quick and kind of bit at me a little bit. You know how that goes. And being incredibly calm, extremely patient, long-suffering man that I am, it probably took me, I mean, probably two seconds for me to let her know I wasn't real happy with that. Then she reacted to my reaction, which then I reacted to her reaction after she reacted to my reaction. And pretty soon we have a tough day because I couldn't keep my mouth quiet. Because I had to let her know. Because it's important that you major on the minors. No! And we all have illustrations. It can be in any relationship, but in a marriage, if you're not careful, you begin to nitpick every little minor thing. You begin to major on the minors. Have you ever heard this? And we probably told all our kids that strategize your battles. You shouldn't fight every battle. You can't win every battle. So battle only the ones that are major. What would be different in your relationship? What would be different if your marriage, if you decided you were not going to major on the minors? Now, most of us try that, but man, if we're not having a good day, be careful. 
My friends, if you want to grow in your relationship, have a healthy spiritual marriage of love and respect, grow in your faith and major on the majors, not on the minors. Number three, point the finger in your direction more than towards your spouse. How many of you finger pointing? Guys, there's just there's something about finger pointing. Nobody likes it. But we're all really good at pointing our finger. Now, how many of you women in here, if you're married, if your marriage really isn't going all that well or you're struggling, how many of you would agree with me it's your husband's fault? I've got two women that were bold enough to do that, and I've got plenty of counseling time. Kathy has opened my schedule for... It's your husband's fault, doggone it. If he'll just grow up and be a good man and a godly man and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, life would be better. How many men in here, if uh, if your uh, marriage isn't going maybe as good as it could be or you would want and maybe you are struggling, how many of you would agree with me? It is your wife's fault. You guys are all going to be in trouble. Gosh, sorry. I should have pre-qualified and told you not to raise your hands. How many of you know it's so normal and natural for all of us to point the finger? Isn't it? When our needs aren't being met and aren't not going well, it's his fault. It's her fault. What we really need to do to grow in our relationship and have a greater spiritual relationship of love and respect, we really have to learn to turn the finger back. Listen to me, please. The direction of your finger will often determine the health of your marriage. The direction of your finger will often determine the health of your marriage. How many of you know you can change another person by changing yourself? But that's, that's, we don't want to do that. I just want them to change. Again, you can be thinking of your marriage or any other relationship you have. I want to share a quick little illustration, and uh, he knows I have shared this before, but uh, I, I came from a, a broken and divorced home. My parents were divorced when I was 15 years old. And uh, my dad moved out of town, and we didn't have a very good relationship, and uh, I didn't talk to him. And then, uh, then I gave my life to Christ. I became a Christian, and I began to read in the Bible. We'll see uh, in uh, chapter 6 where we are to honor our mother and father, and I'd read that. And, and I would say, I don't want to. I don't want to honor my mom. I don't want to honor my dad. I'm hacked off at him. They got divorced. I'm 15 years old. I'm living on my own, and da-da-da-da, you know how the world goes. And... and uh, so there, I was praying one day, and, and I felt like the Lord was saying, it's time to honor your mom and your dad. Well, I knew the one is that uh, I kind of sensed I was supposed to call my dad. And in my mind, I was going, no, he's my dad. He's the one who left. He should call me. And yet I kept feeling challenged, so uh, I called him. And that was a really hard conversation. You know, this is 35 years ago, so this is nothing recent and called him and it was very uncomfortable and then you know a couple of weeks later i felt i was supposed to do it again no i did it once isn't once enough 
And so I called my dad, and what the point I'm going to try to make is I continued to do that, even though it was hard, and I didn't like it, and I felt it was his responsibility. And then after a period of time, I began to realize that if I didn't call him, then he started to call me. Oh, well, that's kind of kind of cool. And so the God kind of took me on a journey. He said, what else do you want from your dad? And I said, well, you know, I've never heard my dad tell me he loved me. You know, in that era, my dad's 87 years old, and, and I don't think in that era that... At least that uh, the people I've run across, they they didn't tell their kids a lot. They loved them, you know. And so I want. So I felt like the Lord was saying, "Well, tell your dad you love him." No, he's to do that for me. I'm the son. He's the dad. He's older. He should be more mature. So anyway, I remember calling and then finally get off the phone and go, uh, "Love you, Dad." Nothing on the other end. All right, good talking to you. <laughs> oh, gosh, let down, hurt, angry, frustrated. So then I sensed what I was supposed to do is every time I get off the phone, say, Dad, I love you. And so I kept doing that out of obedience and because I thought it was important. And the Bible says, given, it shall be given to you. And then, then I began to realize that if I didn't say that, then he would say, love you, son. I just cried like a little baby the first time I ever heard that. I was a grown man, cried like a little baby. My dad finally told me he loved me. Then the next thing, didn't get too far off. Then the next thing was that, uh, what else do you want for your dad? Well, I want my dad to, to hug me. I've never, uh, dads don't hug. We were handshake. Shake that big, strong arm. So I remember, and I remember this one really clearly. I felt like God said, hug your dad when he comes and visits. No. I don't want to hug my dad. But I was learning. You change other people by changing yourself. So he walked in the door, and I can see in my mind's eye right now, and oh, God, give me strength. Here we go. Because, you know, you hug. That's weak. That's emotional. It's wimpy. That's just not how I grew up. We were athletes and tough and male and macho. So I went and put my arms around him and hugged him. Oh, man, it was like hugging a refrigerator. It was the... It was the coldest thing I've ever felt. Oh, my goodness. And then I felt ashamed and embarrassed. And he was looking at me like, what are you doing, boy? <laughs> I got a great dad. You've met him, met him. Guess what? Every time from then on when I saw my dad, I hugged my dad. And then I began to realize when I saw my dad, many times he would make the first approach and he would hug me. The story I learned, and this is true for all of us, even in marriage, you can change another person not by pointing the finger at them, but by pointing the finger at yourself and changing. We change others by changing ourselves. Give and it shall be given to you. So grow in your faith. Major on the majors. Make sure you're not being a finger pointer. Number four, seek to give more than you seek to get. Let me let you in on a little secret, okay, about myself and about uh, others I've met and about all of humanity. We're selfish. I know that surprises you. I know that really blows you away about me or about yourself. But we're selfish. We want our wants and needs met. And when they're not, we're not real happy campers. 
Because we have this mentality is that our spouse, somewhere along the line, is to meet our needs and to provide our wants. Now, we don't consciously think that way, but we live like that. He didn't do that. She didn't do that. He didn't give me that. She didn't give me that. And that's our human nature. And if you're not careful, it's very easy to seek to get more than you give. Isn't that true? But again, the Bible says, give and it shall be given to you. So if you want to improve your marriage and have a spiritual partnership of love and respect, no, I'm not saying any of this is easy, but grow in your faith. Major on the majors. Make sure that you're not pointing the finger outward and make sure really in your heart of hearts you want to give more than you receive. Number five, manage expectations well. Expectations must be managed well or they're going to be killers of joy and happiness in a relationship. Expectations start out seemingly so innocently, but then they become and they grow so demanding. And missed expectations create wound and hurt and anger and frustration and division and bitterness. And you know what? Nobody ever teaches us how to manage expectations very well. Whoever sat down with you and said, let me teach you how to manage your expectations. They didn't. Usually people didn't do that in their home. It didn't happen in school. It didn't happen in other places. Let me give you four real quick. Number one, understand you have expectations. They're rolling around in your head, in your heart all day long. Guess what? They seem so natural to you. You don't even realize it's an expectation. But it's rolling around in you. Number two communicate that expectation. If I understand or recognize I have an expectation of Lou, I need to communicate that. Hey, Lou, can I tell you, I was just thinking about it, and I have this expectation. Can I communicate this to you? Number three, negotiate it. Lou might go, well, that's really nice you have that expectation, but I can't fulfill it, or I can only fulfill part of it. Or I can fulfill it, but it's going to be next week or next month. And then number four, then you can hold that person accountable to that expectation. But you know what we do? We go from, well, we don't even usually identify we have it. But if we do, we go from one to four. We skip. I have an expectation, so you better fulfill it. And if you don't, I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to be mad. What you forgot to do was communicate it and negotiate it. And we don't do some of the simplest things that will help help us have a healthy relationship and a healthy marriage. My friend, understand every day in a relationship or if you're married that you have multiple expectations. Identify it. Find a way to communicate it. Negotiate it. Then you can hold them accountable. If you skip two and three, I guarantee you, you're going to have some serious problems in your relationship because you're not going to be able to manage expectations well. Uh, number six, resolve conflict quickly and effectively. Not taking care of conflict quickly and effectively is probably the greatest killer of any spiritual partnership. Again, whoever teaches you how to resolve conflict effectively. I've been in this thing a long time. I've dealt with lots of people in relationships and, and marriage and couples. And I don't know if anybody's been ever able to tell me, yeah, this is what I learned or this is what... People talk. We just think we should be able to resolve conflict. If we're in conflict, let's just sit down and talk about it, and it's going to get better. Usually it doesn't. And I want to say this, that I have found very few people who resolve conflict effectively verbally. 
Usually it's come through some kind of writing, or I won't go into all. That's another whole hour message. Let me give you five things real quickly on resolving conflict effectively. Okay? We're going to go really quick through this. You ready? First of all, you've got to listen. We don't listen well, especially when we're heated or we don't have an expectation fulfilled or we're having a cranky day or we're not feeling very good or something. We don't listen. You know, my wife will say, would you put down the channel changer? No. It's comfortable to me. Put down the paper. Look at me. Now, she doesn't say it as boldly and as loud as I'm saying it. Listen. You're not going to resolve conflict effectively if you're not listening. Second, peer to understand. You've got to try to understand that other person. Usually what happens when we're listening, when they say something we don't agree with, what do we do? We shoot right back. Well, tell them why they're wrong. They hit the defense mechanism. I call it a see from behind principle. Let's say, for instance, I'm having conflict with Lou. And I'm trying to listen to you. I've got to get back behind him and see through his world. That's hard to do. Instead of just listening to what you're saying to me and then me being defensive and reacting and fighting, which is normal to me, I've got to try to hear to understand. I've got to get back and, and see it through his perspective. Listen, hear to understand. Three, ask questions. We're in this conflict. Lou and I are talking about it. I'm trying to see from his perspective. Now, did you say that? Did you mean that? Because I maybe took that wrong. So there has to be some kind of dialogue of, of trying to understand. Number four validate or give them the right to see it from that perspective. We are masters to say, your perspective's wrong, Lou. Okay, I'm listening to you. I'm trying to understand. I ask your questions. But what you're thinking and feeling is just not right. Lou, come on, Lou. That will, that will not help you resolve conflict. But if I say to him what? Lou, I've listened to you. I've tried to see it from your perspective. I've tried to hear to understand. I've asked questions. You know what? You have the right to believe that. Isn't that respectful? And then number five, you can choose to agree or choose to agree to disagree. I can guarantee you almost, I've been doing this for 25 years with couples. I can almost guarantee you if you will run that process well. You will listen, you will hear to understand, you will ask questions, and you will validate it's okay for them to have that perspective. By the time you get to it, the problem's already solved because you've been walking through a healthy, respectful process. I'd like to say, I'm off the subject now, I'd like to say to the Republicans and the Democrats, you are not going to resolve conflict the way you're doing it. Duh! Anybody get a clue? I'm telling you, human beings, if they would start to listen and hear to understand and ask questions and validate instead of putting each other down and saying, you're wrong and I'm right, they'd have a chance to get it figured out. I'm running for office. 2020. Friends, I'm telling you, and I say this, if you don't learn to manage expectations well and you don't resolve conflict effectively, you're not going to have a very successful relationship in anything, especially with a husband and wife. I need to go on. Where's Dylan? Dylan, start making your way up in uh, Renelda, please. Seven, be careful to not take each other for granted. 
One of the easiest and most dangerous things to slip into is we take each other for granted, especially if you've been married for a long period of time. And then you stop doing the things that makes the other person feel special and treasured and prioritized and loved. About a month ago, I was talking to a gentleman. He was talking to me about his marriage. And, and uh, boy, he was just cranking on his wife and what she wasn't doing. And, God, I was just kind of trying to listen to him and not make any judgments, but just to be a sounding board. And, man, he was letting her have it. And he didn't know if he wanted to stay with her. And da-da-da-da, the whole thing went on. And I said, well, you know, I'll be praying for you. And I did pray for him. And he called me about a week later. And he said, uh, my wife just communicated to me that, She's not sure she loves me anymore, and she's not sure she's going to stay with me. A week before, I mean, he was like, gosh, good riddance, get rid of her. And he was wounded, and he was broken, and he's fearful, and he thinks his wife might leave him. I guarantee you what, he's not taking her for granted right now. He's doing all the little things of affirming her and bringing her flowers and, and telling her and figuring out her love language again. By golly, this guy's on it. What would happen if you really believed that she may leave you? Would you act any different? If you really believe that he may leave you or be unfaithful to you, would you do anything different? Talked with another couple recently and went through a situation where, um, I guess I'll just put it this way, is that the husband had communicated to the wife that though he hadn't been unfaithful, he'd sure been thinking about it. Created hurt, created wound, created some division. But I, I can guarantee you that woman right now is not acting like she did before that was communicated. That's not out of fear. I don't believe in fear and manipulation and control. But I want to say it is so easy to take each other for granted. And it hurts relationships. And the last one I'd share with you is pray for yourself and also pray together. If you want the best marriage possible, you can't leave God out of the equation. You can't leave him out of the equation. And to keep him involved in the equation is you need to pray. You need to talk to him. You need to communicate. I encourage you, pray for your spouse. Pray for yourself. Pray for your marriage. And I'm telling you, and I'm not trying to get on my wife and I've struggled with yours too. Very few couples pray together. I'm probably thinking most everybody in here is squirming. Maybe not. Kathy and I have had these seasons where we're on and off, on again, off again. We pray together, then we don't pray together. I can tell you, if you really want to improve your marriage, and as hard as it can be to try to sit down as a husband and wife and pray together, it does create a spiritual unity and a spiritual partnership and a spiritual power. You do hear your spouse sharing their heart before God about how they think about you and feel about you, and they're pouring out their heart to God, and you do feel a sense of, of uh, affirm. And who doesn't appreciate being prayed for? If you, if you say, hey, Jeff, can I pray for you? I'll, I'll probably say no. No, I'll, I'll be grateful. I'll be extremely appreciative if you'll take me before God. It's the same way in marriage. So here, we've, we've shared eight things. A six-hour seminar in 
40 minutes. My friend, all I can say to you, it's the heart and the desire of God if we're married is to have a spiritual partnership where love and respect really are working. And so, my friend, male or female, again, we could talk about other relationships, apply these to your kids, your parents, your coworkers, your neighbors, but especially in regard to marriage. Please, grow in your faith. Major on the majors. Be careful where your finger is pointing. Seek to give more than you get. Manage your expectations well. Learn to resolve conflict effectively. Did I miss one? And pray. Oh, pray. Pray. Father, I pray for each of us in here. Marriage and relationships are difficult. They're challenging. There's some seasons that they couldn't be any better and there are other seasons they don't feel like they can be any worse. Lord, in your word, you give us in those 11 verses, 12 verses if you count it that way, the encouragement. Husbands, we are to love our wives. As Christ loved the church. And the way I do that is these eight things. And wives are to submit and respect their husbands as unto the Lord by these eight things. So I'm asking for healing. I'm asking for encouragement. I'm asking for renewal. I'm asking that, Lord, we would no longer have 50 or 55 percent of divorces in America. And God, people have been divorced. I give them grace. And there's no condemnation here, God. We all have relationship challenges. So I just pray grace on anybody that's gone through or going through a divorce, Lord, that there'd be no condemnation. That's not the heart or the intent of you or me or anybody else. It's that from this point forward, Lord, we can improve our relationships. Would you help us, God? you help us that marriage is to be a spiritual partnership characterized by love and respect would you stand on your but I did a marriage conference in Branson, Missouri many many years ago and a lot of this was this and it was in a different setting and so I'm really not inviting you to do this. But we're going to sing Draw Me Close to You. And what I did is I had every couple in there, because it was a marriage seminar, so they were all couples. I had them look at each other, which was uncomfortable a lot. They had to hold hands. They had to, I'm not going to do that to you, Lou. <laughs> Reputations get started really easy, bro. I get my wife in there, that's fine. I had them look at each other and grab hands and sing this song to each other. So as we sing this, you can sing it to the Lord. But I also want you to think about your marriage. It says, draw me close to you. Never let me go. I lay it all down again. To hear you say that I'm your friend. I mean, it's powerful. So you can do it to the Lord, but also uh, think about it if you're in a committed covenant relationship of marriage.
Jeremy Klaus. Draw me close to you. Never let me go. I lay it all down again to hear you say that I'm your friend. You are my desire. will do nothing else could take your place to feel the warmth of your embrace help me find a way bring me back to you you're all I want You're all I've ever needed You're all I want Help me know you are near No one else will do Cause nothing else could take your place To feel the warmth of your embrace Help me find a way And bring me back to you You're all I want You're all I've ever needed You're all I want Help me know you are near as you leave today number one if you can find the strength and the courage if you're married some way today tell your spouse you're all I want you're all I've ever needed be surprised that those words heartfelt can heal a lot of hurt discouragement distance 
Number two, and I'm glad my wife, uh, she's the church administrator. She does the bulletin. And she said to me, how about after you preach it, we sit down and we talk about it. Here's eight things you can take a look at, begin to talk about, begin to explore. No finger pointing. But begin to say, how do we work on this? How do we grow on that? What are the one or two things that we need to do better? I make you a promise that I'm going to work on my marriage by looking at these eight. And I encourage you to do the same. So if you're married, God bless you. God's for your marriage. Make sure you tell your spouse today, you're all I've ever wanted. You're all I've ever needed. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.